This is Sinan Aral. I'm the author of The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I produce this podcast to help us both keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow faster by taking a sales-based approach to marketing. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. And if you're one of the many, many listeners who's left a review on Apple Podcasts, I want to drop a little something in the mail to thank you. Details after the interview. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Sinan Aral to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt, published by Currency, an imprint of Random House. Now, rather than reading his official bio, which we are going to talk about, I instead want to quote from page 15 in the book. I'm a scientist, entrepreneur, and investor in that order. First and foremost, I'm a scientist. I'm a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, where I direct the initiative on the digital economy and the social analytics lab, where we study the social technologies that make up the hype machine. I earned my PhD at MIT and completed my master's degrees at the London School of Economics and at Harvard. I'm an applied econometrician by training and have studied sociology, social psychology, and most of the curriculum in the MIT PhD program in economics. I'm a data nerd. I analyze large-scale social media data for a living to try to make sense of how information and behavior diffuse through social media and society. My real expertise, though, is in graph theory and graph data. In other words, I study things that are connected in complex network structures, whether people in social networks or companies in buyer-supplier relationships. Sinan, congratulations on the hype machine, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me. So, There's even more to your bio, and I think the audience will be very interested. Tell us about your other businesses and what you, uh, some of the specific things you teach there at at MIT. Yeah. So the first tagline that you read from page 15 there, that I'm a scientist, entrepreneur, and investor, uh, in that order, by the way, in terms of priority, is really a kind of a good summary. Uh, You've got the MIT part down. Uh, I'm a professor at MIT, obviously. 
but I'm also an entrepreneur and an investor. So I have built and sold businesses in the space of marketing and digital marketing in particular, uh, and have started a venture capital firm, which over the last three years or so has invested in AI and machine learning driven businesses for uh, marketing technology and enterprise performance. And so the real takeaway from that is that I don't just research it and write about it, but I actually execute on marketing strategy in the marketplace every day. Excellent. And with a book titled The Hype Machine, when I first heard about it from your publicist, I got to be real honest, the first thought that came into my head was that this was an unauthorized biography of Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> well, you know, Gary's actually uh, mentioned in the book. Uh, That's right. When I got to page 200, though, it's not like I was saying, wait a minute, where's the Gary Vaynerchuk stuff? But when I got to page 200, you actually did talk about Gary Vaynerchuk. And we are. I want to talk about how he comes up in the book, uh, because you talk about how, at first blush, you kind of thought, you know, you thought, oh, this guy's a, a carnival barker. But actually, there are certain things that he really uh, understands quite well. What I did want to mention, some of the endorsements from a couple of authors that have been on the Marketing Book Podcast. Seth Godin, who, by the way, I interviewed last week for his upcoming book, The Practice, he wrote, it reads like a thriller, but it's all too true. A thoughtful, well-researched, and timely look at how the structure of media changes the structure of our lives. It's time we took action and amplified the ideas that truly matter. And Jonah Berger writes, the hype machine is a riveting story of social media's impact on how we vote, date, and shop, and thus how we live. With our democracy in the crosshairs and tech companies controlling our screens, leading expert Sinan Aral pulls back the curtain on the digital tools used to direct the flow of influence in society. Part spy novel and part science thriller is an essential guide to ensuring our digital future. So before we go any further, for people that only heard me say Gary Vaynerchuk, which <laughs> is not a book about, explain what the hype machine is. Yeah, so the hype machine is essentially the social media industrial complex, and it's very new. So if you think about it, just 10 or 15 years ago, social media did not exist, and now it pervades every aspect of our lives, from how we read news, to how we shop, to how we connect with our friends and family, to the way that we think, the way that we vote, the way that we date. And the purpose of the book is to describe how all this works under the hood, what it means for society, and what it means for business. So in the preface, you write, my goal is to take you on a roller coaster journey through what I've learned studying, building, investing in, and working with social media over the last 20 years. It's a harrowing journey with unbelievable discoveries and sordid scandals about how social media impacts our democracy, how it can disseminate lies while connecting us to valuable truths, how it fights repression at times while promoting it at others, how it propagates hate speech while defending free speech, and most of all, how all this works under the hood to hook us neurologically, emotionally, socially, and economically. The story not only reveals the business strategies behind social media, but also the relationship between social media's design and how it affects us. Now, I want to step back and just read a couple other things to set the stage, primarily the tension <laughs> between the, the good things and, the, and, the, and potentially bad things. 
You're right. The people who make the social media industry tick are dedicated technologists. They care about the future of our planet. They're wicked smart, and they're committed to making the world a better place. But social media's impact on the world is not determined by intention alone. As we all know, there have been many missteps in building the hype machine. And then you go on to say, our enthusiastic embrace of social media during the pandemic lockdown of 2020 was a 180-degree reversal from 2019 in the weeks and months before COVID hit. Before the pandemic, social media was a pariah. And then moving on, you write, just weeks before the virus hit China, Sasha Baron Cohen called social media the greatest propaganda machine in history. In his remarks before the Anti-Defamation League, he said, Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, and others reach billions of people. The algorithms these platforms depend on deliberately amplify stories that trigger outrage and fear. It's why fake news outperforms real news because studies show lies spread faster than the truth. So I, I now want to read some questions, listener, that the author himself poses. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to ask you to explain. So you're right. So which of these visions of social media is correct? The promise or the peril? Is the hype machine a force for good, for collective intelligence and solidarity, or is it a scourge and a pariah? And then you write, is social media a force for meaningful connection, collaboration, social support, and access to life-saving information? Or is it a propaganda machine that left unchecked will destroy democracy, civil society, and our health. Can the promise of social media be realized without the peril, or are they inexorably linked? Professor, what say you? Well, I mean, this is the classic story of good and evil. Yeah. You've got, you've got the clear stories of the tremendous harm that social media can create in the world from its effects on democracy to the spread of genocidal propaganda to the live streaming of mass murders in New Zealand to discrimination against women and minorities and so on, on one hand. But you've got a tremendous amount of mobilization potential on the other hand. So you've got a quarter of a billion dollars raised for ALS in eight weeks on Facebook when Nepal experienced its greatest um, earthquake in the last hundred years, Facebook outraised both the entire United States and Europe for aid relief from 770 individual donations. Uh, it also connects us with our friends and family and provides us life-saving information, opportunities to do business, ways to engage with our consumer base that we've never seen before. So there is the potential for tremendous peril and the potential for tremendous promise. And we've seen in books that lay out both of these stories. We have a decade of techno-utopianism where social media was going to connect the world and give everybody free speech and opportun economic opportunity and life-saving information. And then we've seen a follow-on decade of techno-dystopian books about how AI is going to destroy the planet, quoting Elon Musk. Facebook is <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> Facebook is going to destroy uh, democracy and civil society, quoting Roger McNamee and Zucked. And now... Uh, what I felt we really needed is a book that tries to transcend this techno-utopianism on one hand and techno-dystopianism on the other, and to ask the question, what can we do? 
if we rolled up our sleeves and tried to solve the social media morass that we find ourselves in, what would we do? And that is the the point of the book. And it's not going to be found on a political bumper sticker. Correct. There is no silver bullet. Anybody that tries to sell you a silver bullet, whether it's in marketing uh, or in uh, policy solutions to the social media mess we find ourselves in, is a snake oil salesman. There needs to be a lot more depth and rigor. And the only way that you can uh, kind of achieve either of those outcomes, you know, positive uh, returns on digital marketing on one hand or real policy solutions to the social media problems we see today, uh, you need a concerted effort with a lot of rigor and a lot of thought, uh, detailed approaches and good execution. Elected officials obviously should read this book, uh, particularly the, I would say, you know, if you can't read the whole thing, at least <laughs> read the end where you talk about why breaking up a social platform isn't necessarily going to do anything for you as well as other things like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the last chapter, which is all about what, what do we do? It's one of the longest chapters in the book. And it answers most of the major questions that are on everybody's mind. The first of which is obviously in terms of solutions, policy solutions, should we break up Facebook? Uh, and the answers to those questions rely on the buildup throughout the book. So obviously in chapter five, I discuss the economics of the technology, which is ruled by network effects. And in a market with network effects, if you break up what you think is the monopolist, the structure of the of the market will just create another monopolist. So you have to have structural reforms that guarantee competition. And there I'm talking about interoperability, data portability, people being able to own and uh, and transfer their social networks across competitors. It's the same thing that we did with cell phones. You know, before when you took your number from Sprint to Verizon, you lost your number. But then we legislated that numbers should be portable, that you can move from Sprint to Verizon with your number, and that you should be able to call from Sprint to Verizon, making them interoperable without any friction. If we had that in social media and we created competition, that would be the entry level, entry ticket to solving our problems. Then we have to solve all of the market failures from privacy to fake news, election integrity, uh, hate speech, and so on. Right. So it, it was also interesting to me, I learned about why in social media, the it's going to tip towards some some dominant platform anyway, even if you broke up Facebook. Yeah, so this is the story uh, about um, Jimmy Fallon interviewing Sean Parker uh, at a conference that I spoke at, uh, and it was just such a fascinating conversation. And, you know, it was hilarious. They talked about tea blending, and they talked about Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, but there was a lot of seriousness underlying what they were talking about. So uh, Jimmy Fallon asked Sean Parker, he said, well, how did you guys beat MySpace? You know, um, I, I felt like going in through college was a was a really important thing, and that little insight was so important because, as Sean then described in the interview, he said, "Yeah, you know, there were a lot of network effects uh, that played a huge role in how we beat uh, MySpace." And as you read the book, I uh, reveal that actually there was a 
little-known economics paper written in the 1970s, which actually wrote down Facebook's go-to-market strategy, (laughs) and they just pulled that strategy and implemented it, and it's really just based on local network effects. The concept is really simple. Network effects means that a product or platform is a function of the numbers of users on the platform, but... It's not every user that matters to me on Facebook. It's just the ones that I'm connected to or the ones that I want to connect to. So that's what we call local network effects. And so by going in through college, Facebook created a network in which you knew everyone on the network when you entered. MySpace had a network where the people you connected to were strangers. And the Facebook network therefore felt more uh, familiar, safer, and more valuable because these are the people that I wanted to connect to. That created local network effects, and the rest is history. Well, did they realize that in hindsight? I mean, did they sort of stumble upon that? Uh, no. I, or or no, did they actually think, know that that concept in that paper? Well, I don't think they knew the paper, but I think that they had the right intuition. Ah, and the okay. intuition was you know, I don't think that they went back and read the this little-known paper by Jeffrey Rolfs in 1974. But when you go into Section 5 of that paper and you read the economics of it, it's essentially Facebook's go-to-market strategy written 40 years earlier. Mm. And, and they just stumbled on it through intuition. And their intuition was, let's make this a engaging, vibrant, familiar, and safe community rather than this sort of barren wasteland of strangers where if I connect to them because I like their music, I don't know them, I don't have any friends in common with them, I don't have anything to talk about with them. It's totally the opposite of what happened on Facebook. Even if you didn't know someone that you connected to on Facebook, you were on the same college campus, so you knew the event that happened last week, or maybe you were in the same class, or maybe you had multiple friends in common. And this connectivity, the way that they grafted themselves onto the structure of the social network of college students really turbocharged their uh, adoption curve. It's fascinating to read about that. So let's step back in time just a bit, maybe a few hundred thousand years. And uh, Mm -hmm. I want to ask you to remind listeners about how much change has happened recently. Uh, You write that over the last decade, we've doused our kindling fire of human interaction with high-octane gasoline. Talk about the, this thing called the humans and their needs and, yeah. and, what, and, and that match uh, that, that uh, landed on that gasoline. Yeah, you know, I've got a chapter in the book uh, called Your Brain on Social Media, which, <laughs> right. is, which is all about the neuroscience of what happens in your brain mm-hmm. when you're using social media. And it's such an important part of understanding how it works and how they actually designed it. So let me give you the history of humanity in a few seconds and then speed you right up to the last 15 years and how, uh, how it's kind of turbocharged us. Uh, when you read the historical neuroscience on human brain development, what you find is that human brains evolved to be social. Our brains are uh, some of the biggest on the planet compared to our body size, our neocortex ratio, uh, the the size of the neocortex relative to the rest of the brain is one of the largest on the planet. And the main reason for that, uh, scientists are finding out, is because we have evolved to be social. And what that means is we've 
evolved to process social signals and to reason about the social world. And the reason we dominate the planet is because we cooperate, coordinate, and collaborate in complex scale that is unmatched by any other species. We build organizations, we build international networks of people working together on things through digital technologies. Uh, this social complexity is how our brains evolved to process social signals. We're uh, a species um, that's known as fifth order intentional. So uh, first order intentional would be if I said to myself, well, I know that Joe is African. That's first order intentional. But if I said, I know that Jim knows, that John knows, that Sally knows, that Tim knows that Joe is African, that's fifth order intentional. We can we can kind of reason that many hops away from us in the social network and think about the brains of others that many hops away from us. And so fast forward to today, and in the last decade, we have created a technology that delivers millions of social signals to us every day at scale through Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, WeChat, WhatsApp, and so on, whether it's messaging, videos, or the social metadata like likes, comments, and social proof at an unprecedented scale. And so imagine taking this brain that evolved over millions of years to process social signals and then pouring on top of it a cacophony of social signals that never existed 10 years ago. And that's the story of that chapter and what it means for humanity. It was a great reminder for me because I had learned quite a bit about this in um, Nir Eyal's first book. You, you probably uh, know him, Hooked, where he talks mm -hmm. about how to build addictive mm -hmm. products. And, mm -hmm. and he said everybody in Silicon Valley doesn't need to read his book. They, <laughs> they already know what they're doing. And then he wrote another book that was on the show recently about uh, how to keep from being distracted. And... Uh, as a result of that book, but also a reminder from those sections of your book, I don't have social media on my phone. I have the mm -hmm. smallest possible phone. <laughs> and I even have uh, this uh, Chrome plugin called Newsfeed Eradicator for Facebook, just because I know, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm on to those people, okay? <laughs> I know, and they're so good that you know, I can easily understand how social media becomes uh, so addictive. So, you say that in the hype machine, everyone is a digital marketer. Explain. Yeah. So the two questions that I'm asked most often in my role at MIT as a business educator, but also as somebody who works with policymakers, uh, you know, in the last five years or so, uh, or four years, uh, the two questions I'm asked the most are one. Did Russian interference flip the 2016 U.S. presidential election? And two, how can I measure the return on investment of my marketing dollar? <laughs> interesting. <laughs> okay. And the, the, well, it is interesting that those are the two questions. But the more interesting thing is that the answer to those two questions is the same. So the way that you would figure out whether Russia tipped the 2016 U.S. presidential election and the way that you would figure out what the ROI is on your marketing spend is the exact same process. And so when Russians are trying to change election results or when marketers are trying to sell products 
or when a public health official is trying to get people vaccinated or uh, socially distanced or to wear masks, or when uh, somebody's trying to get petitions on a signature or when a political candidate is trying to get votes, they all engage in the same process of digital marketing and uh, social media marketing. And therefore, the concepts of digital and social media marketing that I describe in the middle three or four chapters of the book are relevant both to policymakers that are trying to figure out whether um, foreign interference is changing our democracy and the enterprise leaders and small and medium-sized business owners that are trying to figure out how to engage their customer base through social media need to know the same concepts. And I'm probably the only one, Sinan, but when uh, you've, you've probably heard of the Can Spam Act here in the United States. Yep. So that stands for Controlling the Assault of Non-Solicited Pornography and Marketing. And I always, when I heard that, I always thought, wow, that, that makes marketers seem a little more exciting uh, than, than they may actually be. And so you can imagine my interest when I see that digital marketers are also associated with Russian hackers. So I, I don't know. It just... Uh, Kind of thought, wow, maybe I'm more glamorous. Maybe my kids will think I'm I'm cooler. But of course, that that'll never happen. So, <laughs> one thing uh, I wanted to ask you about is, you say that social media, and this is tied in with fake news, obviously, it's brought us to the precipice of what some have called the end of reality. Explain what you mean there. Yeah. So chapter two is called the end of reality, and it's really all about what happens when we have a scalable machine designed to micro-target messages, persuasive messages to people all over the planet, and therefore we can uh, direct different types of reality-framing persuasive messages at different people what does that do to the common ground of truth that exists? And especially when we have deep fakes, which are visual and audio uh, fake news. Uh, and if a picture is worth a thousand words, what is what happens to the world when uh, reality distortion scales? And that's really the focus of that chapter. And it's really so you read Sasha Baron Cohen's quote at mm -hmm. the beginning of this interview about how fake news travels farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than, tr than the truth. He said six times faster. Studies show six times faster. Well, he was referring to our study, which was published on the cover of Science Magazine in March 2018, where we studied all of the true and false news stories that ever spread on Twitter from 2006 when it was founded to 2017, 10 years of data. And in that study, we found that false news travels farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information, and sometimes by an order of magnitude. So that chapter, chapter two, the end of reality, describes what the implications of that are, and then foreshadows the solutions that are described in chapter 12. And talk a bit about the novelty hypothesis, why that is uh, one of the, the strongest parts of uh, this uh, force of fake news. Yeah, you know, we were really curious when we found these results. First of all, we were shocked, right? The, the fact that fake news travels farther, faster, deeper, more broadly than the truth, and sometimes, you know, by an order of magnitude, on average, six times faster 
that shocked us. And so the natural next question, obviously, is why? Why is it the fake news is traveling so much faster and farther? And, you know, we had a, a bunch of initial hypotheses. We thought, well, you know, maybe fake news spreaders are just different. They have more followers or they follow more people or they're more often verified users of Twitter. Or maybe they've been on Twitter longer or tweet more often. So we checked all of those hypotheses in turn and we found the opposite. Fake news spreaders had fewer followers, followed fewer people, were less often verified less time on Twitter and tweeted less often. So we had to come up with other explanations. And if you read the cognitive science literature, what you find is that human attention is drawn to novelty. We've evolved to care about things in the world that are new, maybe because we wanted to see the lion's head poking up over the bushes over there so that we could run. What's new in, my, in the horizon that I need to be worried about? Mm -hmm. But this is still true today. So when some new piece of information enters either our visual or our mental space, that's what we focus on. And if you read the sociology literature, uh, what you read is that uh, we gain in status when we share novel information because we're seen as being in the know, knowing things that other people don't know or being uh, privy to, quote, inside information. And so we tend to be drawn to and to share novel information. So we checked whether the false tweets were more novel compared to what I'd seen in the last 60 days than the true tweets. And we actually found, yes, they were way more novel. And when we looked at the replies to true and false tweets, we found that replies to false tweets expressed surprise, disgust, anger. Uh, replies to true tweets uh, expressed anticipation, joy, and trust. So we, they are more novel, they're 70% more likely to be retweeted. And when we reply to them, we express surprise, disgust, and anger. They are hyping messages. They are salacious. They boil our blood. They're emotional. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Explain why video versus text is uh, the, hype, the hype machine's primary medium now. I was surprised to learn that. Yeah, you know... Uh, I work with Alex Kalmer, who's the CEO of VidMob, one of the primary uh, video analytics companies in the world. They're actually a portfolio company of Manifest Capital, which is my venture capital firm, along with Paolo Falzoni, my uh, business partner. And Alex likes to say, video is eating the world, just like um, Andreessen used to say, software is eating the world. Well, it's true. You know, Video is becoming a greater and greater proportion of content that is transmitted and consumed over uh, social media and all other kinds of digital media. And the other thing about it is that it's way more persuasive. It's way more visual and visceral. So again, a picture is worth a thousand words. Then you take a bunch of frames of pictures and put them in a moving image and they are emotion uh, inciting. They are persuasive. They are captivating. And so for the reasons of both greater volume of content is going to be and is video today and it's more engaging and more persuasive video and understanding video is a really important part of understanding both the social media economy and digital marketing mm. so you mentioned uh persuasion i wanted to go to the chapter on personalized mass persuasion and you write that the social media advertising ecosystem is a persuasion market, and that to understand the hype machine, we have to understand digital marketing. 
explain what you mean there, and could you touch on the this concept of lift? Yeah, so the social media economy is based is an attention economy that's based on getting your attention and then selling it to advertisers, organiz- international organizations, political campaigns, anybody who wants to message you and persuade you. That's the ad inventory that's sold by Facebook and Instagram and so on. And so it's based on this attention economy. And so in order to understand how it works, we have to understand how digital marketing works because that's exactly how persuasive messages operate over digital media, social media in particular. Uh, And it's what drives the platforms to make the design decisions that they make. So that's kind of the entry point. Now, in order to understand how to rigorously measure return on investment in social media and digital marketing, you have to understand this concept of lift. And the uh, best antidote to explain that is an antidote that I tell all my students when they come into my digital marketing class for the first time. So imagine they're all filing into the classroom, sitting down at their desks, and I greet them at the door uh, of the room in which we're going to have the class. Uh, And before they sit down, I hand each of them a leaflet for the class, advertising class. They all get a leaflet, they all sit down, they put their books down, the leaflet is on their desk. And then I say to them, first question, what is the conversion rate of that ad that I just gave you? They all raise their hand, they give the obvious answer, 100%. Everybody who got the ad bought the class, okay? And then I say, what is the lift from that uh, ad? In other words, what it, Whose behavior did that ad change? Again, uh, it's the ad that you handed to them. The as leaflet they were coming in, yeah, yeah, the the leaflet, and and there and the obvious answer to that is zero. There's no behavior change created by that ad or that leaflet because everyone who uh, got the leaflet had already signed up for the class. <laughs> So the conversion rate is 100%, but the lift, the behavior change caused by the ad is zero. And that story alone tells you the difference between a correlation-based and a causation-based approach to ROI and digital marketing. And lift is the causal behavior change created by your persuasive messaging, be it social media ads or digital marketing ads or video ads or whatever it is. The concept of measuring the causal behavior change that your messages incite is the core concept of rigorously measuring ROI. Correlation, causation, you talk about it quite a bit. Just as a reminder, explain why they aren't necessarily related. Like, in other words, we're always hearing uh, correlation does not mean causation. Yeah. So eBay was spending $51 million on search engine marketing. And they were estimating, based on correlation, that they were getting a 4,100% return on investment on those search engine marketing. Then they conducted an experiment where they shut off search engine marketing and they measured, both across Bing and Google marketing, what happened to traffic when they were doing it and when they weren't doing it. And they realized that they were actually getting a negative 63% uh, return on investment. And so the experiment showed that when they didn't spend money on marketing, people came to eBay through organic traffic. And so they were just throwing good money after bad. They were just (laughs) kind of, you know, and the experiment made the, made the point because uh, it showed what search engine marketing was causing 
in terms of their consumer's behavior and what was just correlated with their already interested consumer's behavior. And what they learned essentially was that, you know, dedicated consumers of eBay are going to come to eBay. They already want to come to eBay. They're just like the students that already chose to take my class and, and spending money to market to them doesn't make sense. But if they could market to new consumers that weren't aware of eBay, this concept of prospecting, uh, then they could really create behavior change. First-time customers, first-time customers in a particular category. And so they really uh, were able to improve by getting a sense for how to separate correlation from causation in their analysis of marketing and ROI in particular. Which leads us to digital marketing's dirty secret. Right. And I saw that headline on here off to the side. I wrote, oh, behave. Right. (laughs) Uh, Professor, what is digital marketing's dirty secret? Yeah, you know, I've been I've been in this industry for a long time as a practitioner, researcher, scientist, and it is amazing to me uh, how the industry's incentives are aligned and how that gets everyone to buy into this shell game uh, that exists. So the the dirty secret is that digital marketing doesn't work nearly as well as it's advertised, but if done right, it works really well. So the best example is Procter and Gamble, right? So Mark Pritchard got up at the IAB, uh, the Internet Advertising Bureau's major conference in 2017, and he gave a keynote in which he said, uh, Procter and Gamble will no longer work with people who don't uh, give us verified measurement of performance of ads. Uh, you know, clean industry contracts that are not based on kickbacks and so on. And Procter and Gamble cut their digital marketing budget by two hundred million dollars. And marketers were up in arms. They were like, "You can't do that. You know, you're going to contract the entire business of P&G. You're never going to be able to sell any products. How could you cut two hundred million dollars in digital marketing?" And <laughs> he said, watch. They, he, yeah. So he cut. To, he, then he put his money where his mouth is. He cut his $200 million from his marketing budget. He raised sales by 7.5%, doubling his industry's average. And he did it by figuring out what was working and what wasn't working and optimizing. And what he learned was that reach was better than repetition. Mm. So he was, he was throwing a bunch of dollars against hitting the same people with 10, 15, 20 digital marketing ads. But instead of doing that, if he could reduce that spend and then broaden the audience to which he was sending just one ad or two ads, that he could really bring people to the table. And if he collected a a data set, he collected a data set, I think, on a billion people and really target ads in a scientifically rigorous way, he could improve his results while cutting his marketing budget. Since the COVID crisis hit in 2020, uh, P&G has now increased its marketing budget. Why? Because it figured out how to do it in an optimized and scientifically rigorous way, paying attention to the difference between correlation and causation, measuring ROI in rigorous ways, 
once they figured it out, they said, okay, now we can step on the gas. Now we can press more money into digital marketing because we know what works and we know how to measure what works. Yes. And so that was, I'm thinking that was pretty similar to what eBay was finding about how the, the, it, it works better for new and, and infrequent customers uh, more than for trying to uh, reach uh, your own customers uh, repeatedly. Is that right? Yes, but. So yes, that's what they found at eBay. Yes, what's, that's what they found at Procter & Gamble. But that's I don't like to give uh, sort of uh, catch-all advice that it's always better to prospect for new customers than it is to uh, market to repeat customers. The main message of the book and my main message uh, when I teach is that in any given business's situation for a given product or service that you're trying to market or sell, you need to collect the data do the analytics and figure out what's right in that specific circumstance, do A-B testing, uh, measure the right things, and conduct the rigorous analytics that tell you the answer for your specific circumstance. In those two circumstances, yes, prospecting was better than um, than uh, marketing to repeat customers. But in another circumstance, it might be the opposite. And the main message of the book is be rigorous. <laughs> right. No, well, wait a minute. I'm a human. I want to follow the path of least resistance. I want an easy silver bullet. Right. Dang it. <laughs> so one, I want to step back and uh, ask you one question about what you say to your students at MIT. Explain this when you say, if you're still thinking about consumer engagement as market segmentation, you're about three decades behind. Yeah, sure. Well, I can't, I can't miss the opportunity to respond to your last comment, which is that the book itself teaches you the steps for how to be rigorous. It doesn't, right. it doesn't tell you, here's the answer. It says, here is the tool with which you can find the answer for yourself. And that tool will be true as the industry changes and adapts over the future, whereas the answers that you get today may be stale tomorrow. Okay. Yes, and that's why your book got me to do the one thing I hate the most, which is to think. <laughs> I love it. Great. So let me let me take you to the the four decades of consumer engagement, which I think was fascinating to me. So Rob Kane, the former CIO of Coca-Cola, uh, shared this um, framework with us, and it's the four decades of consumer engagement. He said, "Listen, in the 1980s, we built a single message for the, a big audience, and everybody got the same message. You can think about Super Bowl ads. You spent a ton of money and time." creating a 30-second spot. You ran it once. Everybody saw the same ad. The 1990s were the decade of segmentation, where we started to think, well, maybe soccer moms are different than 18 to 24-year-old gaming enthusiasts, and we can design different messages for these broad groups of people. That was the 1990s. In the 2000s, the internet came about, and we started to get into personalization or customization because we could track individuals' demographics, behaviors, web browsing history, prior purchasing history, and so on. And we had a channel that could uh, direct messages to individuals. But really, since about the year 2010, we are living in the era of the socially linked consumer, which is uh, sort of embed who is embedded in a digital social network of word of mouth messaging and uh, and and user generated content, be it likes, shares, comments, or 
conversations that are happening. So the the takeaway from that in the in the digital hype machine era, what I call the new social age, is that if you're still talking about market segmentation, which we were seeing in the 1990s, you are about 10 decades behind. You've missed two major shifts in how we think about consumer engagement most effectively. Mm. So one other question before we get to Gary V. Okay, because mm-hmm. uh, you know I, I I teased that at the beginning. You can't skip Gary V. No, no, no. Um, but it has to do with uh, another. I mean, and and again, just so the listener understands, I'm pulling you know needles out of a haystack here. There's there's so much, and I, I'm sure I'm frustrating our guests by what the the questions I'm asking about. But there was a another interesting study you talked about where certain products work better on social advertising than other uh, product categories. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, um, we've done so many studies. And as you've read, the book is just packed full of, you know, large scale studies of social media, experimental studies at the scale of, you know, tens of millions of people in our studies. And so uh, we did a study of social advertising um, and we looked across 25 uh, categories of products, 71 products in 25 categories. And we measured the effectiveness of social advertising across these products. And what we found um, is that certain categories performed really well and others performed well, but not as good as kind of the, the rock star categories. And it really had to do with how uh, built for social a particular category of product is. So I'll give you a perfect example. Status goods versus non-status goods. So status goods, uh, luxury brands, fashion, Rolex watches, high-end cars, high-end appliances. Um, In part, we consume them based on uh, what we think other people are going to think about the fact that we're consuming them. And so the social uh, value to us of displaying a Rolex watch on our uh, wrist uh, is not lost on our brains. And so when social feedback is included social proof is included in advertisements for products that are in luxury categories, it performs better than, say, products that are not luxury brands, but maybe are information goods, like, for instance, um, digital cameras, where really we're in it for the features, the the zoom lens, the megapixels, and so on. Uh, And so status goods, for example, uh, do better with social advertising than non-status goods. And... When I read about that, it brought me back to what we talked about earlier about how people will spread maybe fake news in part because what it says about them, how novel it is. You know, you, you may have heard the expression, you are what you share. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, and the book builds up that concept from first principles, right? It starts with the neuroscience, the brain of how we think about how other people think about us. The economics of the value to us in a networked economy, all the way to the strategies that work with those fundamental contours of the information economy uh, as its backdrop. Mm. Okay. Ask Gary V. <laughs> all right. I, I just have to quote from page 201. Mm-hmm. I'll admit, I was a Gary Vaynerchuk skeptic. Not a hater exactly. I admonish my son for using that word, but definitely a skeptic. Brash, 
unapologetic and uncompromising Gary V, as he's known, the founder and CEO of VaynerMedia, touts some fairly gimmicky punchlines with best-selling book titles like Jab, Jab, Right Hook, and Crush It, you could be forgiven for mistaking his presence on social media for an infomercial. Trendy swipe-up animations on Instagram, bobblehead dolls, and Gary V cartoons next to pictures of smiling turds. He seems, at first blush, like a circus <laughs> sideshow act. You might also excuse my personal skepticism because he and I have several fundamental disagreements on some basic issues like the value of education and the merit of telling kids they can be anything they want. He's frequently advising teenagers and 20-somethings to drop out of school. Picture me covering my six-year-old's ears. On second thought, maybe I was a hater, but I was wrong. Professor, how were you wrong and what does he get right? Well, you know, look, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk is um, essentially a lightning rod of people who are his devoted fans and followers and people who really just don't appreciate him. Right. And what I and what I learned by really uh, sort of diving deep into his material is that, you know, uh, he really understands the attention economy better than anyone I have seen in practice out there. And what do I mean? Well, by the time I was, you know, many, many, many videos deep into his content, I realized that he already had me. And he had me because the one thing that he wanted from me was my attention. And he got it based on the content that he was putting out. And then as I read more about his business philosophy, he's obviously an incredibly successful person, mm -hmm. um, is that <clears throat> he got that over the last kind of 15 to 20 years, and it's been true you know, in the past, but much more so now with digital and social media, is that this is an attention economy. That, uh, you know, that the platforms are selling attention in the form of ads, and that getting attention at a low cost is an essential business strategy that spans beyond marketing, but uh, it is essentially the core concept of translating investment into, into persuasive messages into results, right? So that if you can pay less for attention, you've made a, you've made a, a, a success. If you can, uh, succeed in persuading more with the attention that you invest in, you've made a success. And all of those concepts, when put together in a strategy for an attention economy, where you are trying to arbitrage attention, you are trying to pay as little as possible for people's attention, you're trying to optimize the right people's attention, and then you are trying to succeed as much as possible in persuading the people with whom whose attention you have that process which is described in the book he understands that better than anyone in the digital economy as far as i can tell and he's fantastic at it and that's why you know he's sort of like um i don't know like you know the grateful dead there's certain people where you know if you like the grateful dead you have to really really like them <laughs> i may not be right but you know certain certain uh lightning rod kind of like you talked about and he's the same way but i still pay i I'm not able to follow everything he does because I just can't, you know, he's, he's like drinking from fire hose. But what I do find interesting is that 
the types of things he's talking about. And then you described it in your book as attention arbitrage. You say he's built his career on investing in underpriced attention. And he's gone. And so whenever he's exploring, I can see that he's really uh, zeroing in on certain platforms. That's where the the arbitrage is happening. I think right now he's really hot on TikTok, isn't he? Yeah. So, you know, uh, when he talks about the evolution of his career, uh, you know, he says, you know, I went from uh, doing email marketing when email marketing was underpriced to then doing Google advertising when it first came out when it was underpriced to Mm -hmm. then doing Facebook advertising when it first came out and it was underpriced. And so anytime there's a new, he's completely platform agnostic. He doesn't care what platform it is he wants to be there first he wants to be there when it's underpriced he wants to get established and and establish his audience there and he's just kind of done it over and over and over again right because the point he's making is that when a new platform first comes out they can't charge that much for the attention that they bring you but when it's established they can really charge a lot for it so Mm -hmm. you want to be in the channels that are uh, cost effective the ones that are underpriced, but that give you uh, a lot of attention for that smaller price. And part of the rub there is that a lot of marketers or companies, they want more case studies or they're, they're not willing to take that risk uh, early on. And by the time they do get those uh, that sort of confirmation, well, the, the market is tightened up. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of learning by doing, getting in there and uh, and really executing, learning from mistakes and so on. It's actually the motto of MIT, mens amanus, uh, hand in mind. Uh, we learn by doing and we do by learning. And essentially, you know, I think that uh, when you wait, you lose the first mover advantage, you lose all the learnings you get from making the mistakes by acting. Uh, and so as an entrepreneur and as an investor in entrepreneurs now, uh, I heavily favor action, and I and I uh, heavily favor those who kind of take it. Well, and evidently it must work. So there was also a great quote at the beginning of this chapter, uh, The Attention Economy and the Tyranny of Trends, by Herbert Simon. A wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. Yeah. I mean, we are inundated with information. Right. I mean, think about the information economy. The amount of information that's created every day, uh, you know, is exponentially increasing. Well, uh, what does information consume? It consumes attention. And so, uh, when you have a ton of information, uh, what you have is a scarcity of attention. And so, attention is the scarce valuable resource in this attention economy. And as you, as you noted, I have an entire chapter dedicated to the structure and, and, and functioning of the attention economy, which is a really important thing to understand today because it really does drive a lot of business and marketing success. That also reminds me of a quote I heard Jay Baer say once, and, and I found that this is helpful in, in getting people to realize that their prospective customers just aren't as interested in them as, as they are. He says, remember, you're competing with cat videos now. <laughs> so. It's a great example. It's a great example. I mean, anything and everything is out there consuming people's attention. You really have to be uh, sort of, you have to add value to someone in mm-hmm. order to, for them to listen. And that is such an important lesson. And Gary Vee also, you know, talks about this himself. If you're, if you're not adding value, if you're not giving back, if you're not giving 
people something that they um, you know value that they that they want, then they're not going to pay attention. They they're not there to serve your business. They're there to serve their needs. Wait, right? what? No. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, no, I've heard it. Uh, I think it was Craig Davis who used to be a creative director at the one of the agencies I worked at in New York, J. Walter Thompson. He says, you know, in, instead of interrupting what people are interested in, we now have to be what people are interested in. Yeah, that's a great quote. I love that, actually. So, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, to succeed in marketing today, you have to move from a perspective of correlation to a perspective of causation. Marketing is about behavior change, emphasis on the word change. So, mm-hmm. an integrated digital marketing or social media marketing program requires you to understand how your messages change behavior and you know, that's a lot of what's described, how to do that in the book. Absolutely. And it also brings to mind a great question to ask, like when I'm talking to a prospective customer, is I, I try to peel the layers of the onion back a bit by trying to find out what change they are looking for. And with any luck, it starts to they start to talk about the change that they're they're hoping to get with the either the customers or their their prospective customers, you know, perceptions or or actions. So Yep. Great strategy. So what's one thing a listener could do today, just one, to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? Yeah, you know, I think uh, a baseline thing is that you got to measure what matters and then work backward from that. A lot of time, we are kind of measuring what we can measure uh, and then trying to build a strategy or a set of tactics around that. That doesn't make sense. You've probably heard the story of looking under the lamppost for your keys, right? So a uh, guy is, is furiously looking uh, under a lamppost for his keys and somebody walks up and says, you know, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm looking for, for my keys. And the guy says, uh, okay, did you drop your keys here? And he's like, no, I dropped them in the house. And he says, why are you looking under the lamppost? And he says, well, this is where I have all the light. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, it's, it's such a, an age-old story, but it makes so much sense. You have to decide what the key performance indicators are for you, measure what matters as best you can, and then work backwards from that. Mm. That's great. And it brings to mind a quote, of course, who knows if he said it, but Albert Einstein, I think he said something like, not everything that matters can be measured and not everything that is measurable actually matters. Exactly. And you also talked, and I can't seem to find it while we're talking here, but there was another thing about why certain agencies and, and marketers are recommending back to the digital advertising because they, they can measure something, but it doesn't really matter what it is that they're measuring, if, if I recall correctly. Yeah. I mean, you know, the one thing that, that we have to realize is that the current state of the industry is based a lot on um, multiples of spend. So you That's know, people it, are yes. Pay- yeah, so people are paid on multiples of spend, whether it's a, a, a digital agency or a marketing agency or you know a third-party outsource provider. Um, typically, they're just being paid a fraction of whatever uh, you spend with them. Uh, and that doesn't make much sense to me because that does not align incentives between the brand and the and the collaborator, you know, because they're essentially incentivized to make you spend more money, 
they're not incentivized to make your money perform better. Uh, and so there's a whole description in the book about what that means for how you manage uh, both outsourced providers or agencies, but also uh, just your approach to digital marketing and marketing in general. So with the companies that you invest in, do you still see them starting to go in that direction sometime and you're able to point them uh, in a better one? Well, yeah. I mean, we are focused uh, a lot on SaaS businesses that are delivering tremendous value that can be measured and then trying to create recurring revenue that scales in a, in a SaaS type of model. That type of uh, reduction in revenue variability is essential to a healthy business. Mm. So what books have most inspired your work and career? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's a really hard one because I, like you, uh, read a lot. So I'm reading, you know, probably on average two books a week. And wow, you know, I hope you don't start a podcast where you don't do <laughs> no. I, I, then I'd have to cut down how much I'm reading. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> so you know, this it's there are so many great books out there, and I have so many colleagues writing great books. But really, for me, some of the classics. Are, are great. So, for instance, you know, age-old uh, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, just mm-hmm. to really sort of describe how markets work, you know, why specialization happens, uh, the economics behind that, and what that means for incentives and behavior in markets and so on. Uh, a fascinating and important um, read for anybody doing any kind of business. Um, and then a, a little bit more modern, but still written in the 1980s, uh, Information Rules by uh, Carl Shapiro and Hal Varian. Really, the, the, the economy changed dramatically with the advent of uh, digital. And to understand how digital products and digital business and internet business and things that are not happening in face-to-face markets where you have to travel to them over geographies, uh, to get the basic rules of information goods and information markets, uh, that book is fantastic. Interesting answers. Yes, uh, you're really kicking it old school uh, mm-hmm. with Adam Smith. I think that came out like 1776 or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, I'm going deep. That's right. That's right. So are there any recent or upcoming books that uh, you recommend or are looking forward to reading or seeing come out? You know, this is, again, a little bit uh, old, not as old as Adam Smith, but I really liked um, Capital by Thomas Piketty. And the reason I liked that one was because it is not only such an insightful book about the economics of wealth generation. So I think that if you, if, if you turn on Instagram and there are a lot of these people who are trying to tell you how to make money, right? Uh, but one of the insights that I think that most people who are successful at uh, in business realize is that assets that um, that appreciate, that earn passive money in the background while they're just sitting is really the way that wealth is created. So wealth is not created through income based on hours spent. Wealth 
real wealth, generational wealth, is created by assets, owning assets that make money. And you can read a number of different you know, takes on this, right? All going all the way back to Das Kapital, Karl Marx, right? And I'm not a socialist or a communist. I am <laughs> totally a free market capitalist. But uh, Thomas Piketty has described the importance and value of capital and the differential returns to capital and wages in a way that focuses on its role in the dramatic rise of inequality in our society today. And I think that it's both a lesson in wealth creation and generational wealth creation, but it's a huge lesson in the instability, inequality, and sort of turmoil and lack of fairness that exists in our society as a function of the structure of the markets that we've built. I think it's incredibly well-researched and, and really insightful. Fascinating. Yeah, very interesting. And at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, uh, you know, to your site and your LinkedIn profile and, and everything else we can find, uh, including all these books that you've uh, mentioned so people can find them quickly and uh, explore them. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. The author is Sinan Aral. Sinan, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, I would like to return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I will drop it in the mail to you. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on this show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of, for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Podcast.